0: This is one of the things about politics that um, makes it fundamentally tragic, right? In that in the political moment, the forces that are pulling one way or the other, they cannot see or they refuse to see if you prefer, right? They just are unable to see the totality.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times Podcast. Um, It's great to be back, and we have an excellent show for you today, an excellent guest, Professor Greg Graham from the University of Oklahoma. And for this episode, we try to drill down on a, a topic or an area of concern that has been kind of animating and in some ways central to the global political and economic and social discourse for decades, um, you know, tracing all the way back to post-World War II era, the 1940s and 1950s, if not going back further. And that is the issue of development, um, which is, as I often encounter in my classes, a a term that, you know, it's one of those terms that, you know, you know, you think you understand it or you think you have a, a kind of handle on it, Um, and what it means and what we're talking about until we're really asked to kind of pin it down because it always, of course, begs the question, develop what? And um, what does a successful development look like? What should its goals be? What should its aspirations be? Um, What kind of end state or what sort of metrics or or so forth are we trying to attain? And how do we think about that? And, And I think that question also leads to a really critical set of secondary questions. Why has, despite I feel to be kind of in on the part of many actors, genuine, earnest efforts to take on this topic and um, address the question of development and, and improve the lives of people around the world, why has it not borne the results that were, were dreamed of or imagined All these, all you know, at the very beginning, um, over a half century ago, and you know, this is again a question of how you want to parse things out. I mean, you have like kind of, um, broadly speaking, I'll just use him as an avatar, like this, the Stephen Pinker view that like things are really getting better, and we look at the reduction of extreme poverty, and you know, the amount of people living on less than two dollars a day, and and so forth, and um, you know, health outcomes have been improved, and. It, it always is a question of the, the data doesn't speak for itself, right? And and it's a question of how, when that goes back, well, how do we measure what, what do we mean by improvement? What's an acceptable level um, of resource distribution or in terms of people's lives and well-being? And on the one level, you have that view, right? But on another level, there's a, there's a whole host of, of thinkers and, and even policymakers in this area who still see, um, particularly places um, in sub-Saharan Africa, Certain places in Southeast Asia, um, certain areas of South America, um, where we see um, widespread poverty, uh, lack of access to basic resources, and lack of access to food—you uh, know, you name it—people, you know, children and other adults dying from what in many in wealthier countries will be considered easily preventable or curable diseases, um, and the list goes on, right? And 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 it, it's always this point where it's not. You know, you don't want to think about developing countries as just a kind of place of of devastation and horror and so forth, right? Because that is also a, a misleading um, representation. Um, this tends to often be a problem with how we discuss Sub-Saharan Africa. But at the same time, you don't want to be overly Pollyannish and and you know get into the famous kind of snipe at Leibniz in Voltaire's um, Candide, right? Where the the one protagonist is saying all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds, right? That just everything's great. Um, When clearly we are still living in a world of substantial um, uh, economic inequality um, in the terms of the basic lives and outcomes we can expect for someone born in somewhere like the United States or Germany versus someone born in say, um, Mozambique or Cambodia or, or other places. and that that is a that is also an empirical reality where we're talking about life expectancies, often you know differences in life expectancy in in the terms of decades, right? Um, and if we think about how much we might have enjoyed 10 years or 20 years of our life, um, that is a massive issue um, that, um, despite all improvements, continues to persist. And there's a whole nother layer on top of this because most countries, maybe not all, that we would designate as quote unquote developing countries. and and you know that we can talk about the problem with the term development itself. Um, but to to keep things short here, there's an overlap between what we would describe as developing countries and countries that we would also describe as post-colonial countries. Um, And that is where my guest, um, Professor Greg Graham, really brings a lot of sharp insights in in a way that he's able to deftly weave um, political theory and political philosophy with um, trying to understand and ascertain crucial aspects of the experience of developing countries within this post-colonial context. Um, And as we're going to see, and as is the title of a recently released book on the topic, Um, he uses the dramatic motif of tragedy as a way to try to understand and appreciate um, efforts to um, improve conditions within these countries and then also the consequences of those efforts commonly if not almost always coming far short of expectations. So I'll leave it there because I, I don't want to, you know, we, the discussion really digs into this. So that's just to give you an idea of where things are going. As I hadn't talked to um, Professor Graham for quite a long time, um, we traded messages over the years, um, but we haven't had like a good sit down discussion for, for quite some time. Uh, our our conversation went quite long and, and ran the gamut of, of quite a few issues. I listened to it. All of it's great. Um, I guess I'm biased, but uh at the same time, I realized there could be, you know, with podcasts, I'm a podcast listener myself, there could be a bit of a sticker shock if you get an episode that is a hundred minutes, it could just seem a little bit uh, long and, and you don't want to invest your time and in, in thinking that, you know, it just can seem a bit stark. So what I've decided to do is to break our conversation into two parts, um, roughly, a you know, half and half. Um, I think the, f- the first part here is a little bit longer than the second part, but it, it's roughly split in two. And there was a really nice kind of change in the conversation in terms of the direction um, towards the last 30 or 40 minutes we spoke that set that up nicely. So let me briefly introduce um, more formally Professor Greg Graham to you, and then we're going to hop right into the conversation. Professor Graham is an associate professor and chair in the Clara Lupar Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He is the author of Democratic Political Tragedy and the Post-Colony, which was published in 2018. He received a Ph.D. and M.A. in political science from Temple University and also holds a master's in government and B.A. in history from the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. His areas of specialization include African politics, Caribbean politics, Africana political thought, critical race theory, classical political theory, and modern political theory. Um, so as you can see in his background and what he studies, um, Professor Graham just brings a really unique ability to kind of put theory in conversation with our understanding of real historical and contemporary events in a way that um, as someone who's in this business is is quite unique, um, I can say, and, and quite rare, and he he does it in such a compelling and fascinating way. So for that reason, let's uh, hop right into the conversation. Uh, Please keep your eyes out for part two, which will probably be out in about a week. And then we'll be taking a little break throughout August here at the Interesting Time Substack. Um, But we'll be back with new essays and um, a few new podcast guests that I'm quite excited to have on coming in September. So thank you so much as always for supporting the show. Please pass the word around if you like and wanted to share what we're doing with others. Thanks again and let's get to the conversation. Greg Graham, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast.
0: Yaman, yeah, Yaman, yeah, good to be here.
1: All right, it is good to catch up. Um, and yeah, you know, we we it's it's one of the more surreal things about um I've been I've been doing this podcast in in some way, shape, or form for almost a couple of years now, and uh, I've had a few instances like this of, of of good friends and and old colleagues like yourself who I haven't been. In Direct contact for um, a few years um, just maybe some messages here and there and then after all of that time like I'm like okay why don't you just come on and have a chat with me for an hour so this is good it's a, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit of an interesting way to kind of shake things up a bit and one of the things I really wanted to open our discussion with is uh, you know I guess a few years back you published a book um, looking at Uh, you know, it it, it focuses on, and and what is the title again? Remind me. I'm sorry.
0: The title of the book was Democratic Political Tragedy in the Post-Colony.
1: Right. And it's a a comparison or the the study focuses on, you know, looking at cases of um, post-colonial politics in Jamaica and South Africa. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Um, So the book, the 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 book was based mainly you know it was mainly based in um in based with in terms of studying jamaica but you know um there was a strong focus as well on south africa for comparative um for for for, for comparative purposes
1: and it's built around this motif of tragedy right and and i remember yes. you know from some of the conversations um that we we had back in back in our heyday in in the old glory days at, at temple um about you know this motif of tragedy and and how you wanted to kind of apply that to thinking about a post-colonial context and so for me it's awesome to see you know years later stuff that we were kind of kicking around in, in in the grad school offices um come come out as as this book and 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 kind of manifest itself as as a completed work so what how does the you know how do you try to develop this motif of tragedy in these contexts
0: so. Um... What I s what I what I sought to suggest um, you know, in the book, which as you know was originally um my my dissertation from our time at 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 Temple, um what I sought to do was to think through this idea of the post-colonial and in particular the post-colonial experience with this thing we call development and especially socioeconomic development, think about the the plight of the the post-colonial states um as it Pursues that ideal um, through the lens of tragedy, and so there, there, there were multiple dimensions of tragedy that I sought to explore. Um, and you know, in the Jamaican case, I zeroed in on the tragic figure of, of a fellow called Michael Manley, and I sought to juxtapose him against Nelson Mandela because what one observes is that in both the instances at Jamaica in the nineteen seventies. And South Africa after 1994, um, there is this attempt to you know pursue national development at a rapid pace, and there is a thwarting of that effort. But at the center of the effort are these iconic figures, right? So in Jamaica, you had Michael Manley, who was the son of um, Norman Washington Manley, um, one of the earlier leaders in in, in, in Jamaica, one of the, one of the stalwarts of the, the post colonial movement. Um, the independence movement, I should say, in Jamaica. And Michael Manley, when he comes up on the scene, he makes a turn towards socialism, right? Um, More specifically, he becomes an advocate of what is called democratic socialism, which was really um, a sort of Fabianism that came from his father's influence. And that Fabianism, when it emerged in Jamaica's history, was actually meant to deliberately offset the more Marxist Leninist understandings, uh, um, influences in the uh, in, from the socialist currents that were in the country. But manly attempts. Uh, so, to... Greg, oh, can I happen for a minute? Can yeah, you explain sure, what sure, sure, sure,
1: for sure. for our listeners? Could you t- just give a brief description of what Fabianism is?
0: So Fabianism is a form of socialism that, um, you know, it was is popular in Britain that sought that seeks to, it was, in its time, one of the things that it sought to do was to reconcile the, the desire at the heart of socialism for equality and so on and the upliftment of the poor and the upliftment, especially of the, of the working class. To be more specific about it, reconcile that with, um, the aspirations of capital if we may, if I may put it, if I, if I may, if my if I may describe it as such. So the aspiration, by the aspiration of capital, I mean, of course, you know, um, the interests of captains of industry and the interests of the state also in capitalist pursuits. So how does one reconcile these things? And so it is a more, I guess, from a certain point of view, one might see it as a, as a mild sort of socialism, um, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, and then, of course, the Marxist, um, the Marxist understanding of socialism is a more fundamental transformation in the material relations in society, um, in the question of who owns the means of production, etc. It's a more fundamental, revolutionary sort of transformation that is envisioned um, when they think about the socialist state versus the Fabianists who, you know, they will be more accommodative of um of of, 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 of capitalism. Um and so what what happens then is that um, in the pursuit of of of, of that model um, in Jamaica, it 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 emerges first with the with Norman Washington Manley, who is Michael Manley's father. But in the seventies, which is the period that I am concerned with in the book, Michael Manley once again evokes this idea of socialism as a developmental paradigm for Jamaica, and so their understanding of development, the People's National Party, the party that he was the head of their understanding of development from that point on and their their model for development was you know articulated through this idea of socialism, to the idea of through this idea of working with the people, this idea of giving the people voice in the in the pursuit of development. And of course they got the attention of the United States almost immediately because this was also the Cold War context. And so what happens ultimately um is this story that you know I'm sure we all know from that period of the Cold War, where Jamaica In catching the eye of the U.S. and the concern of the U.S., um, there is, for example, we're told um, this attention that is given to them by Henry Kissinger, um, who at the time becomes displeased because, over the course of the 70s, because Michael Manley decided that he was going to raise a tariff on bauxite, and bauxite Mm. produces aluminum, and Jamaica was one of the United States' chief supplier of aluminum for the making of aircrafts and so on. And so when Jamaica makes that move, Kissinger, um, the, the history tells that Kissinger was upset and actually visits the country, right? Um, mm. Ultimately, what happened is that by 1980, we have a general election in Jamaica and Manley is, you know, voted out of office. But that election is actually accompanied by extreme, you know, extreme acts of violence, you know, um... Hundreds of people, you know, um, dying over the course of their campaigning to, um, to the point of the election, and there is this general effort to destabilize the country. And you know, the, the understanding back home, the popular understanding, is that, that that endeavor was undertaken by the CIA. Which, of course, to this day, there is the, 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 the denial of that whole their own involvement in that in that in that episode. But generally, though, um, there's this squirting of that effort. Mm. Right.
1: Well, in tune, I mean, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I I remember correctly and, and, um, you know, forgive me, um, because this is probably something that um, almost every Jamaican and and particularly Jamaican scholar, um, uh, you know, wishes to uh, avoid, but I'm only inserting it in here because I think it's a relevant part of the story you're telling. Mm. That election and that kind of violence was the context for the um, rather well-known concert put on by Bob Marley and the Whalers, yes, 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 where he yes, brought yes. Michael Manley and I forget his rival. Edward Siaga
0: Edward, Edward was his rival.
1: Right. And Bob Marley brought them on stage and, and made them shake hands. So yes, I, I'm yes. only bringing it up because it's relevant because I'm sure, again, the, the last thing any Jamaican intellectual wants is somebody bringing <laughs> bring in Bob Marley to the discussion. No, 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 I'm no, only no. bringing it up because it's relevant. No problem, no no problem man, because it, it it
0: actually it actually gets to an important dimension of the tragedy I wanted to make the case for, because um the opposition leader at the time who became prime minister in nineteen eighty Edward, Ciaga, um he represented a view of the destiny of the country, of the welfare of the country as well, um from the point of view of a particular understanding of political economy, okay in short, a very capitalist um, understanding of political economy. Um, and so what you have then is this tragedy where, on the one hand, you have one understanding or one claim, if you want to put think of tragedy in the, in the, in the Hegelian term, you have one claim um, for which national sovereignty and true independence is paramount. And so the people on the, on the, on the left, on the Jamaican left at the time, they would be suggesting that, of, of the utmost importance is this question of self-sufficiency, of national pride, of national sovereignty, right? And then on the other side, on the right, which Edward Siaga represented, um, for them, what was paramount was this question of political economy. How do we balance the books? How do we pay our bills, right? How do we pay the bills of the nation? How do we, you know, build hospitals and pay people, etc.? And so the tragedy, the tragedy that is at play there then um, is the sort of, is the Hegelian tragedy in which you have Two claims that are each justified, right? You have two justifiable claims that come into into contact with each other, and that is really the the, 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 um, the, the, the the at the heart of tragedy, at least the ideal kind of tragedy that 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 Hegel theorizes, right? And so you have this Hegelian dimension of tragedy at play in that in that particular instance. And so what I sought to do was to suggest that you can find instances of the same sort of um the same sort of standoff between viable claims right uh, because the claims according to hegel in his theory when he theorizes um the antigone as an instance of of, of as, a, as a, an ideal instance of tragedy um the the ethical claims that come to bear in antigone he says that each of them are, are justifiable are ethically justifiable the claim that antigone has but also the claim that her uncle has
1: Right. So, what's the story of Antigone? Uh, again, just to uh, the, yeah, fill this out a little bit. So, very
0: so, briefly, so, yeah. So, um, so in, remember that in Sophocles is the Antigone. Um, Antigone, she the son of um, she's the son of Oedipus. I'm sorry, she's a daughter of Oedipus. My apologies. She's a daughter of Oedipus, and um, her brothers come to attack the city, right? And um, it, 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 it is a case that um, one of her brothers come, he's killed, and her uncle, Creon, he declares that, listen, he must not be buried. He must lay out in the sun for the birds to eat his flesh, et cetera, right? Because mm-hmm. he has dishonored his city. And as not you know, the, pay, city, the, city, not right, not the city, right, the city. And so she, as his family member, as his sister, she is morally bound to, you know, lay her brother to rest. But at the same time, her her uncle, who is the king, has declared that this should not happen. And so in Hegel's understanding, in Hegel's reading of this instance of tragedy, um, what is happening is that you have here the ascendance of the state with its ethical claim. So the Korean represents the state, her unrepresented represents the state, right? And so the state has this claim that it places upon her that listen, you have to obey the state. The state has the claim that he should not be allowed, he should not be properly buried, etc. But she has this obligation to her brother. And so she's torn. You understand. So this is her tragic situation. Now she's torn between that ethical claim that the state is making because it is a state, and the ethic, the claim, the ethical claim that she has to bury her brother because she, this is her brother. And so in the end, she buries him, and the tragedy unfolds. Okay. And so we end, we we end, we end up with the question, you know, um, you know, is she deserving of of her fate, etc. So you know, and other 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 such question, who is ultimately right, etc. But Hegel reads this as the as 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 a, as a, a a way of thinking about the emergence of that ethical claim that the state ultimately makes upon all of us. So, but the tragedy—the tragedy that I'm zeroing on here, though—is the, the 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 conflict that is that at, at, at the, the conflict of interest that is that 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 comes to bear. And so this is what I this is how I situate that particular episode with um with with the, with the, with development and the states um in the in, in the in the post-colonial world. If you're thinking about development um in and the post-colonial state, you find that this conflict often repeats itself over not only not only over geographical space, but also over the course of history. Because if you think, for example, about Haiti, for example, after they had attained their independence after the Haitian Revolution, they are faced with the same dilemma as well. Do we prioritize, you know? national independence and sovereignty or do we pursue you know the 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 interests of political economy of, the, of of the economy because you know this is what we need to survive and leaders are generally third, third world leaders and leaders in the developing world generally speaking they are faced with this dilemma and the, the final point i made before um before i, I, I um, I'll let, you, let you jump back in is this that in i would suggest that in the developing world right the difficulty they face with that question is rendered more profound because of the limited resources they have at their disposal. It is not the case that in the first world they do not face a similar sort of dilemma, but they have more resources with which they can navigate that very difficult question. Would there be more more, more political resources and also economic resources with which they can navigate that particular question?
1: Right. No, well, um, Graham, um, I, I mean... In some level listening to you, I was like, uh, it really, uh, I'm, I'm glad for a host of reasons. I was able to, uh, cajole you to come on here, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, hearing you talk about your project and, um, uh, th- I haven't read the book yet, but I, 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 certainly should try to get to it over this summer. Um, I, I think we're, we're, we're asking very similar questions and, uh, I mean, quite, you know, honestly, a lot of my research and articles that I've been writing recently have focused on 1970s Korea, um, South Korea and okay. this question of development in a post-colonial context. And I teach a few classes on Korea. I'm actually currently teaching um, a class on, I call it developmental politics in South Korea. And one of the first things we start off in the class is is saying that the, to understand South Korea, you need to start with the, the understanding that it's a post-colonial society, because often there's an equation between, um, you know, post-colonial societies are um struggling with issues of of poverty or lack of resources but because South Korea is in a, a you know relatively an extremely prosperous society we don't a lot of students don't bring that that lens right and i mm-hmm. think that's a first a first question and and thinking about this motif of tragedy i mean i think in some ways I, that's the the framework i'm bringing to the my you know writing and and thinking about South Korea that's obviously been influenced by by you know a host of of other korean thinkers and writers and and even authors in literature um, so, I, I, you know, it's not my own um, or, or something I came up with myself. And it really gets to this question because in Korea, in some ways, it, it, there's a, a, the irony um, to add another literary term in there is that there's a, an almost another layer of complexity because the developmental system in Korea was, quote unquote, successful by all of the political economic metrics you discussed. I mean, mm-hmm. massively successful. I mean, Korea is relative to any other, you know, it was one of the poorer countries. I think the second or third poorest GDP per capita country in the 1950s in the world. Um, and and much poorer than North Korea, which a lot of people also don't realize that South Korea was immensely more impoverished than North Korea in the 50s and even into the early 60s. And this quote unquote success. And and so actually a paper that I'm, I'm trying to get accepted somewhere right now is actually called Triumphs and Their Discontents.
0: Okay. Um,
1: because- Um, What the state did is, and and in some ways it combined a few of the things you were talking about in the context of Jamaica, where it did use this claim that Korea needs to draw upon this kind of glorious past. It looked back thousands of years to this like Gojo-sun era and where Koreans were strong and martial. Um, And it was all grew out of this um, uh, military coup carried out in 1961 by um, a figure named Park Chung-hee and his associates. And the military regime was saying that Koreans Um, became weak and were too focused on China and this Confucian culture and that Koreans need to be martial and and strong. And, and, you know, he was actually a soldier in the Japanese Imperial Army, which adds another layer of complexity Mm -hmm. um, and that we need to adopt this Japanese martial kind of culture and apply it to development. And his vision of development was basically the militarization of society, the the, the motif of total mobilization, right? Mm -hmm. Taking taking a wartime motif of total mobilization for the goal of sovereignty for the goal of national redemption for the goal of of overcoming um, economic and political kind of weakness right was what's a, so in some ways it was this and and even like you know as the park regime carried on it he ruled for about 20 years before he was assassinated in 1979 you know it was carried out in this motif of you um, um, Koreans are too negative thinking. I mean, so it, it was as mm. much about, so the interesting thing was, it, it had a lot of political, economic, technical things in terms of the government, con, you know, trying to control industrial investment, you know? So it had this interesting mix where the state used investment to direct industrial behavior, but it didn't directly control the companies. The companies were still private profit seeking entities, but the, the, the state used its control of investment to push them in certain directions it it saw as necessary for its developmental goals. But um, underneath all of that was this, you know, and and since we're talking about um, Hegel, you know, this notion of geist that Korea's geist was, was, was toxic. The you know, this is, and I'm, I'm drawing from his own words and writing. I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. this isn't something I, and saying that he has these lines, like Koreans, our history is a a tragic failure. And like, we need to overcome this failure by reorienting our geist, our spirit, our, our sentiment. And so it, 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 there was actually songs in Korea that were banned under the dictatorship solely Mm. for being too, too negative thinking. Like okay. there was a song, like something like love, love, never love always fails or something. And that song was banned mm-hmm. because it wasn't positive. It's too, it's too defeatist. So all is a way to say, so this, this obviously, you know, in, in the context of how we're trained um, in, you know, as in, 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 in to think about development as scholars or as, as just individuals um, was massively successful. And, it, and it's often given the term, the miracle on the Han, mm-hmm. um, but underneath of that was Massive amounts of repression, massive amounts of state control of labor, um, um, torture, murder, um, corruption, rampant corruption, um, and, and, and a population that was, and, and also probably significantly, no resolution to the society's lingering anger about the fact that those who actively collaborated and worked with the Japanese at the highest levels were never held accountable and actually prospered in South mm-hmm. Korea. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these things underlying, you know, and so that that hence you know triumph and their discontents, right that that a lot of these things were either papered over or or stamped out by repression alone. um and and, and so there's a, a sense of of amongst this triumphs there's there's this um kind of set of of continuing sense of of lack of fulfillment or lack of true sovereignty. you know okay. so and this is a big battle within South Korean politics to this day like a, the, the the underlying pre, you know there's the the Contemporary issues are still, you know, very contemporary and and, and center on, on, on ongoing things. But I think the the underlying struggle within South Korean society today, can, it's still, you know, if you want, if you ask me, like, how, how do we judge a uh, South Korean's kind of a person in South Korea's political opinion? Just, I'll just say, well, you know, tell me your opinion of Park Chung Hee, the dictator. Mm-hmm. Some Koreans see him as the ultimate hero, the greatest Korean ever, or one of the greats. Um, others see him. I've had Koreans describe me to, to describe him to me as Korea's Hitler. Right. Uh, so okay. um you can see a wide range of opinions. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's where I, I think this motif of tragedy um mm-hmm. really kind of blends in here is that the irony is that Korea materially and in, in the in the political economic terms you're saying is, you know, one of the the, the, the you know, most genuine examples. And then there was obviously the process of democratization and all these other things. It really is this kind of model case, but underneath of that is a a sense of resentment, a sense of of again, um um, historical issues never being fully addressed or or um, resolved, and that is a kind of underlying tension that goes throughout. And 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 uh, and and before I turn it back over to you, um, one thing I think is is important is that there's a you know a it, this is interesting how you look at it as an analyst or or what kind of vantage point or what kind of position you're standing in um, in terms of trying to understand this phenomenon because. Um, one of the key aspects of the, the developmental system and its quote-unquote success was the state's ability to use both official and, and in many cases unofficial mechanisms of coercion to control, repress, and to maintain extremely low labor costs, even for mm-hmm. relative to other developing countries. And that low labor costs led to um, higher competitive you know, nature for the Korean exports, and those export revenues were used to kind of funnel back into more investment. So for, for some development an- analysts, this is brilliant. If you put it in the technical language, Korea's low labor costs, or it's often quoted hard worker, hardworking mm. labor mm-hmm. um, to describe people who were basically coerced into working long hours and in, in some horrific and dangerous conditions. I mean, Korea had one of the highest rates of industrial accidents accidents in the world, again, even amongst developing countries. Um, low wages and so forth, that technically was a, you know, a, a success in terms of generating higher profits and margins on these in exports um, and making Korean exports more competitive. But underneath of that was really brutal stuff.
0: Yeah, Waterboarding,
1: yeah. torture, imprisonment, blacklisting, you name it. Um, you know, if you, if you even, and, and the government had a mass system of domestic surveillance, Mm-hmm. Right, where where there was thousands of agents, like you, you could go to the bar and like be talking to your buddy, and oh yeah, Park Chung Hee, he sucks. Like I hate this, I hate this system. Like you, you, you would get uh, CIA, KCIA as they were called, which sh- could show up at your work the next day and be like, oh, mm-hmm. we heard, we heard you were, you know. So, it, so it's messy, and and in some ways, it's. It, it, I'm not saying it's exactly. Obviously, it's a different experience than Jamaica, but this motif of tragedy. I, I guess I'm. Without really consciously thinking about it in that way and in pursuing very similar kind of understanding of like, here we have this ultimate model of what development's supposed to be. And underneath of that is a society seething with a great deal of resentment, anger, sense of like calcified class structure. Um mm-hmm. So, you know, and and I don't want to be like too much of a downer and and I don't want to deny the significant improvements to Korean people from, you know, the fifties and sixties to my, you know, my mother, my mother and father-in-law grew up in the fifties and sixties in Korea and people starved to death and it was really tough. So I, I don't, it's on the one hand, I don't want to minimize that or act like, oh yeah, this is, you know, nothing happened. I mean, there's been these dramatic changes, but at the same time, you have a society at present that again, is, 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 is quite. Especially among younger people feeling that it's an, it's a certain emptiness.
0: Oh, okay. That, that 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 is it that is interesting because um the the other um society that I that I was concerned with, that is um South Africa, right? The South African state that I was concerned with. Um, I juxtaposed juxtaposed it with Jamaica, mainly because um you know, you had you had you had a parallel. You had these parallels that were just you know that, that that were just undeniable. So, for example, when Nelson Mandela rises to the fore, right? Um, the South African state is has a particular perception, you know, um, on, on the global scene where of course, you know, Mandela was. Uh, I guess we could call him a rock star. Yeah, if we, we
1: should
0: <laughs> use those terms. Anyway. Well,
1: well, he became—I mean, it's, you know—and as you, I'm not—I know you know this, but yeah, he—you know, 1994 Mandela was like uh, the world's grandfather and this nice yes, guy. But yes. people, yeah, 70s Mandela was a vicious, yeah. murderous communist terrorist. As far as they were concerned, precisely, precisely. Yeah. Um, but but hey, hey, Margaret yes? Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher always hated Mandela. She never gave up her hate for
0: and She Mandela. never gave up her hate for him. So in, um, what you have in both instances, um, you know, is that you have two leaders who they came to embody. And this goes further to, to, um, to, to us, you know, thinking about this tragedy, is that you have two leaders um, and, you know, I cast them both as tragic figures because they came to embody the collective aspirations of their people. Right. And so you had these two larger than life personalities that came to embody the collective aspirations of their people. Michael Manley in the nineteen seventies, he had wide popular support in Jamaica, right? And Nelson Mandela um, in the movement towards bringing apartheid to an end, and immediately after the end of apartheid, he had this—he had—he had, he had um, you know, global appeal to think beyond South Africa, right? Um, but what you have tied up. Within them, of course, as far as these aspirations go, is this desire on the part of the people and this expectation on the part of the people for this thing we're calling development, right? This this thing that we can never quite get our hand on, you know? We can never quite put our hand on, but we, we call it development. Um, you have this collect these collective aspirations towards, and for ordinary people, that translated into, you know, more resources with which they could actually, you know, um, live meaningful human lives, right? They could self-actualize under those circumstances. This is what they, they envisioned when they thought about development. And what happens then, what I'm raising is the question of what happens when such dreams are thwarted, yeah? So for example, um, one might think about it using the lang- literal language, again, uh, Langston Hughes is um, Harlem, right? And when he says, what happens to a dream deferred, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, right? And so when these dreams are thwarted, right? In the way, for example, that, um, for example, Manly with Manly, it was external as well as internal forces that ported um, the project that he was trying to undertake. But also in the case of Manly, you had the tragic flaw where he actively, there's a moment in which he actively, declares to the people who are following him and who are, you know, who are who are who are, who are, who are listening to his every word that he declares that have a famous speech at the National Arena in Jamaica when he says that the, mold, the um the whole theme of the speech was that we are not for sale because the country was running out of money. There needed to be, you know, some in some 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 some, some influx of funds to, to to pay teachers, you know, to pay pay policemen, etc so on the one hand, you know, you had the option of the IMF and the World Bank. Okay? And on the other hand, of course, um they undertook a, a project where they they sought, you know, the input of the people to see what sort of local efforts could they undertake to, you know, to 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 to, to improve the the, the circumstances that that, that that they found themselves in. And Manley gave this famous speech, We Are Not For Sale. Well, it turns out that while he's giving that speech in that same context, he's actually secretly meeting with the IMF we're told. <laughs> He's actually, yeah. and so and so. What I'm driving at then is
1: what happens. Hey, to- hey Graham, yes? not for sale, but but therefore, <laughs> but, but it can be loaned out.
0: It can no. be loaned out, <laughs> right? Right. What I'm driving yeah. at is you know what happens to, to 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 this aspiration then that he came to embody for yeah. the people. And similarly, I mean, not not similar, but in the case of South Africa, then. Um, and South Africa's story is, you know, like Jamaica's story is still unfolding, but South Africa's is more recent. I, I um, you know, we, 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 we could agree. Um, and but what happens in the case of South Africa then is that you know, um, after Mandela, of course, you know that they pursued a set of neoliberal policies that were supposed to bring rapid growth, and though that rapid growth never really came in terms of the kind of growth that actually impacted the lives of ordinary people in South Africa, right? So they they were growing and people were making money, but in terms of the kind of things that impacted the lives of ordinary people, that sort of group that was envisioned, for example, with um I think it, the program was called Um B. There was an attempt at at black an empowerment of a black middle class and there are these measures that were undertaken um within the neoliberal framework that never brought the sort of investment that they envisioned it would bring. So what I'm a part of the tragedy then is what happens to these people, you know. Um, I think that tragedy is a useful lens within which to analyze these and other dimensions of, 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 of human experience, but especially human political experience, which is what I'm sure both of us are concerned with, right? Um, both of us are concerned with this question of, of human experience, especially the experience with the state, right? And, and in the history, in the in the in the origins of tragedy, um, at least the Western, of Western understandings of tragedy. Um, you know you think about, for example, ancient Greek tragedy to be um, as, a, as a starting point there, if you notice it's it 's mainly around the question of the state. There are always people who are linked in some way to this question of how we conduct human affairs at the highest level. Think of all the tragedies that you that, that come to mind. The vast majority have to do with you know the the, the, the lives of people who are, who are, who, are, who, are, who are at the highest level of, of, of social and political life. Because the decision making that takes place at those levels, right, is the sort of decision making that brings, that is faced with the kind of um, difficult decision that we described earlier when we spoke about
1: Hegel, right? And so tragedy is very useful. Right. Well, because I mean, just just if you, you know, if you boil down politics to, to a certain essence of, of how it functions, and, and especially, uh, I think we can emphasize, particularly in an era of what we call mass politics, right, which mm-hmm. is about mobilizing people, which is a much, you know, which is it's still a, in human history a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, last several hundred years, probably, um, give or take, where it's really, you know, not that that's the only example, but I, I think it's, 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 you know, often considered a, a, a key component of what we call quote-unquote modernity is, is this um, onset of mass politics. And in an era, in a, in a functioning of mass politics, I mean, the, the rhetoric needed to excite or bring about a, a kind of critical mass of, of support um, mm-hmm. often requires a, a certain language and a certain emotive language that will ne- will almost, you know, inevitably, hence the the tragic component, um, fall short.
0: Yeah. Right. Yep. yep um, um yep.
1: you know, because yeah, I mean, going out and saying, you know, it, I mean, I always, this is a joke I always do in, in political science. Um, you know, and I, I give a speech of like the, of the pragmatic, like politician out on campaign and like. We're going to do the best we can within our limitations to, you know, increase things by a reasonable amount. And we're going to try our best to, you know, contain some of the problems in society, but we're not going to really be able to fix everything. So, but we're going to try our best. Like (laughs) who votes Mm -hmm. for that candidate?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, recent,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, you have to go out, and and I think I'm not. I I try to be sympathetic to the to the politician. Um, you know, to some extent, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of them are just horrific scumbags, and and and, des- and deserve our derision. But even I think, even and the, hence the tragedy. Even a good person, um, mm-hmm. you know, be they conservative or or left or or what have you. Even if they're they're really a good person, they're going to find themselves that they're going to need to say certain things to win power, and then do different things when they are. And 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 I think Machiavelli, I mean, identified this problematic
0: five hundred years ago. Yeah, and and also also um, there are we have to I think we have to appreciate that there is this um, element of political life that makes it so that in the end, because you're making decisions around. Complex human affairs, right? Mm. You 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 you're probably not going to come out at, at, the, at the other end as 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 pure, if you want to define it as such as when you went in, right? At least, and even if you come out pure in your perception of things, there always, you know, it, it is going to be that others are going to perceive you as you know being somewhat, you know, I don't want to use the word corrupted, but being somewhat impacted by the situation you find yourself in terms of as a as a leader along the way. Yeah. Um, and, and I also, I think, you know, as we think about both, you know, think about, you know, for example, your concern um, with, with with that piece of um, Korea's history with development, you know, and think about it alongside, you know, um, what I was discussing earlier within this paradigm of tragedy. Um, one of the things about the tragedy, tragic framework that I raised when I evoked Hegel, which as I do in the text, because Hegel is my main source, um, but there are other... There are other elements of tragedy that I draw on, for example, because I do draw on the the post colonial um, understanding of tragedy that you know comes from Fanon, but from Hegel though, and in some ways Fanon does you know evoke Hegel along the way as he develops his own ideas, um, but for for Hegel. And, you know, in this case, I, I should say then as, as well as for none, what you see is that a part of the tragedy um, is that the people who are caught in the throes of making these decisions, right? Let us say the people who are pulling in different direction in the context of the post-colonial state. On the one hand, if you recall, one group is prioritizing as 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 correct and as paramount the interest of national sovereignty, the interest of you know uplifting the poor, etc., and the other group is pulling in the direction of a very limited understanding of of political economy, which is rooted in in what we we call today neoliberalism right? So Edward Siaga, for example, he was actually influenced by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan directly. So much so that when he won the election in 1980, he came to see Reagan, you know, and even before 1980, he was in the United States, um, in a meeting with senators and so on, because America essentially was deeply invested in, in his ascension to power. And so Mm. he came to the U S and he famously had this interview where, um, they asked him if he thought Michael Manley was a communist and, um, um, I I I have not verified this, but it is said that he said he walked like a duck, he talked like a duck, he's a goddamn communist. <laughs> <Okay>? so, so <laughs> not, just, just to be fair, this is that's a, that's a um you know that, that that is really a story that was that was relayed to me. I have not verified it in terms of you know finding the interview, etc. But but right. okay, I, just, I just wanted to say that a part of the tragedy um in the moment that it is occurring is that these forces that are pulling in different directions. They cannot see the totality of the entire situation. And so Hegel, for example, he sees himself as the philosopher who can look back to see the totality of the situation. Right? But in the moment, this is this is this is, this is one of the, the things about politics that um makes it fundamentally tragic. Right? In that in the political moment, the forces that are pulling one way or the other, they cannot see, or they refuse to see, if you prefer. Right? Um they, they just are unable to see the totality that they're both relevant um you know and, and so that is a part of what makes for the tragedy So if you think for example about for example um the the the, the demise of the state right mm. and notice for example in this part in this country people are talking about you know the 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 whole you know the, the destruction of democracy etc think about the fact that the people who are pulling in different directions they are so dug in in their particular positions so interactive in their particular positions that they do not see the validity of the claim of the other side, and that is what Hegel, a critical element in 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 in, in tragedy.
1: And well, to throw uh, another element because it, it came up in discussion I had with a colleague of mine that's going to be up, um, hopefully in the, in you know a little bit of time after this recording. I, I brought up the the figure of Max Weber and this idea of that. A lot of modernity, to to use that word again, is facilitated by us kind of finding roles and like in like identifying roles and falling into them. And I think, mm-hmm. um, in some ways, that's that kind of view of and I think Weber saw this in terms of bureaucracy and professionalism and and, and so forth. Um, and I, I think increasingly, though, that's how we are also coming to identify ourselves and how we interact with with the realm of politics, right, that, mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and people use the term identity politics. And, and in some ways that w- I think they're channeling, knowing or unknowing, um, if you pardon the kind of uh, similar motif um, of, of you know, Weber, you know, rather than having some objective, rational understanding of, of the world, we identify roles that we try then to kind of comport with and, mm-hmm. and fit into. Um, and that can, and I think that's something that's really been transformed by this kind of collision of, of social media and politics and like how politics is just, you know, rather than being a, a, an important, but, you know, one part of a, of a, of a a kind of wider life and existence is now folded into everything and is a kind of, you know, encompassing identity. And that makes things even, um, you know, politics has always involved certain intractable issues. And that's something I always think about, but I always say with students, what is democracy? It's, it's a way for like drawing lines on issues that have no firm kind of,
0: you mm-hmm. know, these
1: kind, you know, where two things are in conflict, democracy is is a mechanism for like, you have to settle it, you have to make a decision. So here's, we're going to draw this line is, it's somewhat arbitrary, but at least it can have some legitimacy. And I think if people kind of if, if it takes on if it subsumes people to such a level, that their kind of core identity is invested in it, um, it you know, to again turn back to this tragedy, the tragedy is that it, it, in some ways democracy, that's what it's supposed to be is people caring about these things. But mm-hmm. the irony is if they care about them in such a, 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 a kind of deeply way that's so bound up with their own personal identity, it makes drawing these lines impossible because there's no give. You know that we, yeah, yeah. you know, like the you know the metaphor of like the you know in some ways the the rod that has some bend is is stronger than the one that is is kind of firm.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So I w- I want to circle back um to this you know because we we both kind of use the similar euphemism so I think we're 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 sharing similar kind of um ideas here about this we always say so called development or quote unquote development. Mm-hmm. One of the things, and I think it was Colin Lay's um, in his book he wrote on on kind of the emergence of development theory. It's an older book written in the '80s, but I really think it's, it's quite insightful. And one of the ways he puts it is that it was, in some ways, in, envisaged as like a rediscovery. The status of colonial societies or emerging post-colonial societies, and the and the, their lack of resources, their their political problems, the tensions between ethnic groups. If we if we look particularly in societies in sub-Saharan Africa, were Rediscovered, and in some ways, that process, as, as he called it, rediscovery, was a mechanism for disconnecting the behavior of countries like Belgium or France or or England from these problems. Like, oh, now we're yeah. finding, oh, these societies are like they're a mess. Oh, and oh, how what, how do we fix this mess? Development, and yes. it, it's a somehow trying to break the clear causal connection between the the problems these societies were facing, be it in again Jamaica or India or Pakistan or. Zimbabwe or or what have you with the direct effects of colonial politics for the, you know that lasted decades or for centuries development kind of emerges out of that as a kind of salve to to fix these problems but in doing so negates the clear culpability that these societies have for this and and I think this is always a difficult question now, but I'll, I'll ask you kind of to weigh in because I I teach on development and I always say it's a, a fine line where you don't want to Position people in the global south or in these societies as you know lacking agency or lacking their own you know social or cultural or historical ways of approaching these problems, um, but you don't want to center their agency to the extent that you negate the severe political you know and, and raw power and, and murder and, and violence and, and repression and manipulation that has um, left them with with very difficult conditions. And it, to me, it's always this fine line right? Because, you know, yeah, so I don't know what, I mean, how, yeah, how do you kind of try to approach that?
0: Um, So, I mean, there, there, there has been a lot of uh, scholarship as you point out, you know, around, around this, this question of development and, um, you know, the recognition of the reframing of reality that takes place um, in the post colonial context, Um, you know, it's actually a salient feature of, 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 of scholarship coming out of the third world. Um, and so for example, if you think about a classic in in um in, in development theory um from the third world, like Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, right? Um while often some historians, you know, um will dismiss it as 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 ideologically driven because he declares from the very get-go that he's actually, you know, he makes it known that he's actually a um that he's actually Marxist, a Marxist historian. Um, and so um, one of the things that he seeks to do in the text, though, um, is that he actually tries to suggest that, you know, if you are thinking about development and, and this question of the underdevelopment of, of, um, of, 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 of third world states at the time in the, in the 1970s, um, you have to recognize that their underdevelopment was linked directly to Europe's development. Right. And that and so he, he sought to zero in on the slave trade as you know, as this moment in which you see this development on one side versus underdevelopment on the other, um unfolding. And so from that point of view, um these quote unquote developing states, they did not pop out of thin air. Right, they, 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 they. He does, um, he does something, you know, which I think is one of the immense values of Marxist historians and Marxist theorists generally, um, in that he historicizes their position as as underdeveloped. He shows that there is a there is this moment in their history that actually impacts their standing as underdeveloped. They did not suddenly become underdeveloped with all these ethnic ethnic um proclivities that might be playing a role in inflict in in, in inhibiting their in, um their, their their development and so for example, even ethnic identities for example um are in the African context you know are when you put them into into proper historical context, you see that there are some of them that actually predate colonial you know the colonial situation. Right? And then there are others that are actually created in the context of colonialism. Right? And, so, and, so, and, so, and so, if, so, for example, um, in Uganda, for example, some of the colonial, some of the ethnic identities that you find around the Lake Victoria region, um, they are actually, you know, um, anthropologists and, his, and historians point to the historical moment in which they are created as a means of accessing resources. Right? In the in the context of colonialism. So I say all that to say this, that, you know, there is this scholarship, there is this, this rich trend of scholarship coming out of the, 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 the global south that actually approaches development from a point of view where it recognizes, you know, clearly this instance in which there is a retelling of the story then. Right, there's a retelling story of these places to suit this paradigm for which you know they have to go through these processes of modernization, in the way that Samuel P. Huntington suggested, and also they have to pursue this paradigm of um of of, of development.
1: In that in that line, I mean, I think too, because right along the like, I always have this idea that you know Western civilization was built upon barbarity, and mm-hmm. to what extent that you know. Um, for for lacking other models, that you know, there there came this notion that a certain amount of violence and repression is intrinsic to development, and, and we can see that tragedy, that kind of cascading effect, play out in in a lot of post colonial politics.
0: I'm sorry, repeat repeat the question. So, sure.
1: well, I mean, the the you know, to to some extent, and this is, I think, again, you know, uh, we keep coming back to this motif of tragedy, and, and rightfully so, is that. Um, in, for many post-colonial societies, the uh, the model that was still used to draw upon tended to be um, in Korea it was Japan. I mean, for for the, for okay, the dictatorship, okay. mm-hmm. or or for Uganda, let's say England, right? You know, I think I mean, it's not a coincidence that like Robert Mugabe or Idi Amin were officers in the were trained by the imperial or colonial forces, right? And so mm-hmm. they become this template, and that template, in some ways, is is part of the legacy: is that barbarity is a, is a means to civilization that Western civilization yeah. in some ways profited in, in, and was built upon barbarity, you know, just wrote violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking about the Belgians in the Congo and, you know, and, and that for people who are drawing from those lessons in, in some ways um, justifies or legitimates a certain amount of violence and barbarity in the, in the pursuit of, and I can see that in Korea for sure.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um, So there is this, there is this, um, there's this moment in a book called The Wretched of the Earth, written by Frantz Fanon, mm. um, this moment that comes at the end in his conclusion, where one of the things that he was trying to do, um, was that he was trying to, because he was actively involved in there. He was originally from Martinique in the Caribbean. Right. Um, he was actively involved in the Algerian war for, for, um, for, for independence, right? Um. And he actually, just a, a quick history, um, in the end, he, um, he, he passes away, in the United, he dies in the United States hmm. um, when he came, to seek, um, he came in to seek treatment for, for leukemia that he had developed. Um, by that time, of course, he was wanted by the French and so on. So when he came here, he was actually held on to by the authorities and interrogated and all that. And he contracted pneumonia to complicate things and he passed away. But
1: hmm. now He was in trained history, as a psychiatrist?
0: Yes, he was a he he's, he's a, he was a psychiatrist, right? Um, so in the Richard of the Earth, um, in the conclusion to the Wretched of the Earth, he goes at length to really admonish his um African brethren who were actually involved, actively involved in various wars for independence and, and struggles for liberation um, in the, in the, in the 1950s and he really, into the 1960s, he really impressed upon them the need to make a break with the European paradigm, Mm.
1: right?
0: Right. And, um, the, the, the the sad thing about it all is that, um, in the end though, um, his pleas fell upon deaf ears because he saw in the European paradigm for development, what he referred to as the death of man, right? Right. He saw it really as as, as, as as beleaguered, as plagued by, by, by just death and the destruction of human beings. And so he was suggesting to them that they come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things. And if possible, um to, 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 to add to what he's saying, also new ways of thinking about development. Right? And so um in the book, he actually makes some, you know, he makes some practical solutions as to what they could do to begin to actually move out of that way of thinking about what national development ought to mean. Right? Um, and as I was saying, though the sad thing is that in the end, they all—all all of these states in the Caribbean and in on uh, the African continent, in across Asia and so on—they ultimately, you know, um, try to mirror Europe as much as they could. Right. Um, to the extent that, for example, in Nigeria, if you remember Federal Mm. right
1: yeah I do um, it's, a, it's a he, Yes, right.
0: We, 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 right, right he has a song called mr follow follow right. Right? he has a song called mr follow follow mm. um and one of the things that he's getting at is the way in which they start to emulate everything um instead of coming up with their own paradigms they start to emulate everything that that and um i guess there's there 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 is a i think there's a dilemma there um you know because if we think about um people who are caught in the in, in, in context in which they are colonized, in which they are oppressed, and so on. It seems to be a pattern, if you think about it, that in the end, they end up mirroring um, the system that dominates them.
1: Right. right? Well, well, we were talking about um, our, the old political theorist at um, Temple, or um, our former professor, Bart Winnick, and I, I remember him one time, like it was a line that always stuck with me. I think he was paraphrasing Nietzsche, um, but there was some line from Nietzsche that basically could be like seen as like, be careful how you choose your enemies. Because you'll start to yes, you'll start to yes,
0: mimic yes, them. yes, 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 and then um you 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 actually have you know people people um like people who actually you know say things that have said things that are that, that are you know to the same effect. So for example, there's there's a there's a saying that I think came from original from Rousseau, Jean Jacques Rousseau, um where he said the problem is with man is that he was once a child. And a lot is tied up in that. You know, the psychologist will draw a lot from it, from that simple, simple statement. Um, but if we think about development and so on, um, one of the things that comes out of that particular idea that the problem with man is that he was once a child, is that the things that are impacting you in your development into maturity, right? They're still going to be with you when you do get to maturity right and so and so, i guess one one of, the, one of the, I, i'm saying all this suggest that one of the, the dilemmas of the human condition right is that we are historically situated at all times we are historical you know we are, we, are, we are beings of history right. and there's a there's a degree of difficulty with actually radically breaking with these sort of histories and so to return then to the post colonial situation right um and to, to to bring once again fanon into the mix Fanon observed um, in the colon of the colonial situation. He theorized it as a as a Manichean world, right? And Manichaeism, of course, was this um, religion that that emerged out of what is today Iran. You know, then it would be like Persia, right? Um, and it was a religion that, for which, um, just to give a bare bones account, for which the idea of good and evil, dark and light, were actually perceived as real things in the world. Okay. And so Fanon saw the colonial situation as an instance of a sort of social Manichaeanism in which people embodied certain values. And so from the perspective of the colonizer, they were the embodiment of good. And from the perspective of the native, from the colonizer's perspective as well, the natives were the embodiment of evil, right? right? They represented the embodiment of evil. And there's a lot that can be gleaned from just that simple perception but the point for none is getting at though is that when you get to decolonization and this is where the Richard of the Earth is actually um a, a very a very um a very very you know profound text at the beginning of the Richard of the Earth when the colonized subject thinks about decolonization thinks about you know entering into a post-independent a post-colonial world right um they think of that development as simply flipping the society on its head and so you see Fanon suggests things like when he gives you snippets of how they're thinking about the world, snippets of their consciousness, they say, for example, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so they imagine decolonization as simply flipping the society on its head.
1: Mm. In
0: that process, right? In that process, then, they have embraced the paradigm of the Manichaeanism.
1: Right.
0: You understand? Mm. So, right. so the paradigm, they, have not, they have not escaped the paradigm that dominates them. They have simply flipped it on its head. And so when you get to the decolonized, the context of decolonization, that Manichaean understanding of things remains. And so as an important component of that, you have extreme acts of violence. You have repression. The same sort of repression that existed in the colonial situation right. is now being deployed by the people who were formerly colonized. Right? And they deployed, you know, um, with the same degree of brutality as as a as, as, as degree of brutality similar to that which, which it was deployed against them during colonial times. But now, leaders deployed, for example, towards a particular ideal, an ideal, for example, of development.
1: Yeah? Right. Well, that, I mean, that is almost, that's exactly kind of, I mean, in some ways in Korea, it was almost quite, like, quite literally one-to-one, like the very mechanisms, like what, what you know one thing the japanese colonial system did was built what we would call a quote-unquote modern kind of bureaucratic state and that state became a capacity for other um forces within post-colonial korean society to seize and com- commandeer in their own purposes right but right, the the capacity right was 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 a capacity and, and, and I I wanna kind of spin this into maybe um a, a, a final turn here. I mean this has just been such a, a, a really enlightening discussion for me. So but maybe a final turn here because I think um, one, I really like the point you made about historicizing the self as as a kind of as, as part and parcel to the human condition, right? And I, I mean, you know, there's always that really well known Marx phrase, right? That man or humans create history, but they do so under conditions they didn't choose, right? We're always operating, in, we're always a historicized mm-hmm. individual. And, and one way I always try to put this to students is on, on one level, we are this living, breathing, growing, developing certainly somewhat spontaneous entity but we are also living artifacts you know we're and 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 it's you know Mm -hmm. you brought up rousseau i've been on a a kind of two-year rousseau um reading project so i i I, you know i I think you know he's one of the more interesting people kind of identifying this this core set of problematics um but thinking about it in terms of um historicizing the self and in the role of history i mean in some level uh, for me one of the ultimate tragedies of of, um this period of of colonialism which is is still we're still living with I think one thing that many people just don't really confront is how new most of the states in the world are so I kind of want to circle into this discussion of the state and this is kind mm-hmm. of a project that's yes. in my mind at least and I'm, I'm trying to do some writing on it now how new most states are right that 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 really the the idea that the world is going to be you know that the state is this kind of, triumphant social form that really didn't become a global social form until 50 60 70 years ago right and, and in some ways mm-hmm. colonialism beyond the kind of control the violence you know like you said the kind of stoking and in, in some cases actual creation of, of ethnic schisms um within in different parts of the world um brought with it a, a certain understanding of How, I mean, because this is getting into like really kind of, you know, core stuff, like how do you be a society? How do you be a polity? How do you be a community? And and what colonialism, Mm -hmm. probably its most enduring amongst its many legacies globally is this idea that there are these states that quote unquote are sovereign. And then there are these quote unquote national communities that shall govern them and control them. And, and what I see is kind of leaving these shells of states that then the, 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 a lot of post-colonial politics in in various places in the world have been struggles to control this i mean in some ways the korean war um amongst many other causes one of the one of the ways to look at the korean war was a struggle to control the state left by the japanese right and mm-hmm. and that obviously led to millions of death in the, in the you know ongoing division of korea um looking at nigeria an ongoing struggle to control this state and i think it circles to a f- you know, a few questions. One, and I don't know if you're familiar, you know, his book came up in a, a discussion, um, an episode we had a few weeks back, um, about, you know, the work of David Graeber and, and, um, Wenglow and this, in this idea of really, and, you know, a, a more anarchist position of really not anarchism, like destroy everything and go crazy and, you know, no rules, but anarchism and like really thinking about different ways that human beings have organized themselves and, and not reifying the state, um, as a kind of, you know, to, to go back to Hegel, right? Because Hegel does many things, but one of this is like a, a certain kind of idea of the state as this kind of final ethical, political kind of community. Um, uh, at least that's my understanding. You, I don't mm-hmm. want to maybe, yeah. And so one of the tragic, one of the, you know, is this idea of like what a modern society is, what a what a, a modern society does is it has a state and then there, it creates a national community to um, be the kind of geist or the soul of this state, like you know, it's kind of or hardware and software or however, and and, and it creates this template that is, um, as Fanon pointed to, was was you know, I mean, I guess there's that term necropolitics, right? It's just a politics of destruction. It's a very destructive way, and and um, it's not just in post-colonial societies. The state system is is obviously in terms of global global environmental issues and and a whole host of wars. Um, you know, the state is a very pernicious entity, um, or in, in many ways it is. And and if you look at it that way and not just there's good states and bad states, but the state itself is is problematic. Um, I think it it adds another in, in the in the colonial order, as you're talking about in the system, it that, you know, the state was just uh kind of taken as a as a given starting point and in and in some ways that structured in in profound ways the nature that post colonial societies engaged with politics locally and 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 also globally and in and, and very also globally
0: much- yes yes it, yes it, it 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 did have that effect upon them because this became the paradigm you know um the way it, the, the the only legitimate means of organizing politically to interface with the rest of the world huh
1: All right, everyone. Well, that's a wrap for part one of the discussion. And please join us back here in about a week to hear part two. Thanks again so much for listening.